Rick, you want your you want your notebook? Sure. I want you to take notes. <laughs> and there's only and there's only so much room on the podium. Well, as I mentioned earlier, this is the season of Advent in which we prepare for the arrival of the King. And uh, so we usually do a different series. Uh, we, we take a break from whatever series we're doing to, to do a different series uh, for Advent. And so this, uh, this year we're going to be in Matthew's Gospel. So if you want to go ahead and turn there, Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. There are four accounts of the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, Matthew is the first And much to my surprise, I actually preached uh, through Matthew for Advent in 2016. I totally forgot. You probably remember, and you have all the notes from that sermon series, I bet. Uh, But just in case, you know, in case you look at your notes and you realize that some of these things I've heard before, you have. And it's okay. Uh, When I went to, I I was working on my... Sermon, I went to go save the, the file and realized, like, oh, I already have a file by that name. And then I started looking, and I was like, I really like that outline. I'm going to use that one. Some of the content's a little bit different, but the outline is, uh, is, is mostly the same. Because if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But Matthew chapter 1, we're going to read verses 1 through 17. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amenadab. And Amenadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. And Abijah, the father of Asaph. And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon." And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel. That's just a fun name to say. If we have another pet, Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel the father of Abiad, and Abiad the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor. And Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, 
of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. This is the word of the Lord. And while the grass withers and the flowers fade, the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray and ask for his help. Lord, would you help us to make sense of what your word says here? Would you open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your word? And would you transform us from the inside out? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now you might be thinking, what in the world is he going to do with that? This is one of those passages that uh, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible or if you're, if you're trying really hard to make a regular habit of reading the Bible, this is one of those passages that make you go, I don't think I want to keep doing this. You've got the pronunciation problem, right? Where I was like, did I say that name right? And I'll, I'll, I'll give you a little good news. Uh, this, this part of the Bible was written in ancient Greek that nobody speaks anymore. So you just give it your best shot, all right? You can't get it wrong. Um, so there's that. There's a knowledge problem, right? We don't, we don't know who any of these people are. And so their, their names don't mean, or some, most of their names don't mean a whole lot to us. Uh, and then finally, there's the application problem. That we, we read a passage like this and we go, what am I supposed to do with that? And that kind of speaks to a problem with our approach to the Bible, uh, we tend to approach the Bible uh, kind of like it's an instruction manual, right? I'm anxious, so we go to the Bible and we say, help me. I'm angry, so we go to the Bible and we say, help me. I'm having trouble in my marriage. Where can I go to the Bible for that? I have a difficult relationship at work. I need help. And we, we can approach, and, and don't get me wrong, the Bible does help uh, in our moments of need, but it's not an instruction manual. Uh, and if we approach it like it is, when we come to a passage like this, we're just going to kind of scratch our heads and move on or give up. And so we need to figure out what this is doing here. Because the Bible is not primarily an instruction manual. And you've heard me say this before if you've been around a minute. The Bible is not first and foremost an instruction manual. It is a story. It is the history of God's dealings with humanity. Now, that may not sound any more exciting to you. I say the word history, you may roll your eyes and go, oh, great. Names and dates. I remember this in school. Boring. But this list of names is important. At least Matthew thought so. After all, Matthew wants to introduce people. He wants to introduce his audience to Jesus. And for some reason, he thinks that the best way to start is with a list of names. But if you think about it, we do the very same thing when we get to know a person. As you're uh, getting to know somebody new, particularly in a community as small as ours, what sort of questions do you ask? Usually one of the first I ask is, where are you from? And that's not just a geography question, is it? It's actually a genealogy 
question. And particularly in a place like Chilton County, to ask where you are from means that we begin to connect to other people who are from that same place. And so if you're older, you might ask somebody, who are your people? If you're younger, we might ask, do you know so-and-so? Right? We ask these kinds of questions so that we can get to know people's stories. Right? People have asked me, oh, Corley, are you related to the Jemison Corleys? No, I'm not. But those are the sorts of things we try to figure out. We want to connect the dots. And so our family, our history, that's our story. It's who we are. It makes up part of who we are for better and for worse. And so you see a genealogy, a family tree, isn't just a list of names. It's a list of stories. And all of these stories, all these individual stories, come together to tell one big story. And this isn't just any family tree. This is Jesus' family tree. Now you see, Jesus, and one of the things that this helps us with, this helps remind us of, is that Jesus is a man. He's no ordinary man. He is God who became flesh. But when he became flesh... He was born into a family. He has a family tree. And so if you want to introduce someone to Jesus, which is what Matthew wants to do, then it makes sense to start with Jesus' family. And what sort of story does Jesus' family tree tell us? Here it is. It tells us that Jesus comes to keep God's promises. And to rescue us from our brokenness. That's why Jesus has come. That's the story that his family tree tells. Now you might say, you got all that out of a list of names? I did. What we see in this family tree, first, is that God keeps his promises. Second, that God keeps his promises through human failure. And third, that God keeps his promises in unexpected ways. What do I mean that God keeps his promises? Well, look at verse 1. Right off the bat, Matthew connects Jesus to the Old Testament, to the first part of the Bible, to everything that God has been doing from the very beginning up until that moment. He he says this is the the book of the genealogy. That word could also be, be translated beginning, though not necessarily And so here we have another Genesis, so to speak. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, we often think, we might think about Jesus' birth as kind of a, a fresh start. God doing something new. And in a sense, he is. But there's another sense in which he is not. If you think that Jesus is plan B, right, that that everything else got all messed up, that, that all that stuff in the Old Testament, that was, that was all a, a big, huge failure. It was, but we, we find out as we read through Jesus' family tree that Jesus is not plan A. Jesus was God's plan all along, that he is exactly what God intended to do from the very beginning. 
So he calls him the son of David. He calls him the son of Abraham. These two men uh, next to Moses are the most important people in the Old Testament. And they are important because God made promises to them. And so let's look at each one of these. First, let's talk about, since he is the oldest, son of Abraham. He's Abraham. Abraham was the father of the Jewish nation. And God made promises to him. And here's what God promised Abraham in Genesis 12, verses 2 and 3. He said, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. What does that mean to bless? To bless is to have God's favor, to have God's smile. And so God promises Abraham, I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God looks at Abraham. He chooses Abraham to be the pipeline of his blessing to the rest of the world. He says, I'm going to bless the world through you. Whoever hooks up to Abraham's pipeline receives God's, receives God's favor, his blessing. And whoever rejects Abraham's pipeline ends up being rejected by God. So God promises that to Abraham. He also, Matthew also calls Jesus the son of David. Now you may be familiar with David. David the great king. David the boy who defeated the giant Goliath. David who is described as the man after God's own heart. What was God's promise to David? We find that in 2 Samuel 7. I don't expect you to, to go read all of these right this minute, but I, I want you to write these passages down and you can go back and read them later. God promises David in 2 Samuel 7 that one of David's descendants will sit on the throne forever. That one of David's children will rule God's people forever. God establishes his kingdom through David's offspring. And what Matthew does is he takes those two promises, the promise to bless the nations through Abraham and the promise to rule God's people forever, and he connects them in one person, Jesus. He is Abraham's son who comes to bless the world. He is David's son who comes to rule with righteousness and justice. And of course, son doesn't strictly mean son. It means descendant. So what do we do with that? Well, first we need to realize that God keeps his promises. And we need to see that he is at work all the time, even if it doesn't look like it. It's easy uh, to panic. It's easy to throw our hands up. It's easy to say, God has forgotten us. But what Matthew's family tree reminds us of is that God is at work all the time. He is fulfilling his promises all the time. He will not be thwarted. His promises will come to pass. God is not asleep at the wheel. And what's frustrating about that is that God keeps his promises, but he does it in his own good time. That's a frustration, isn't it? We kind of want things done yesterday. Uh, I had asked uh, Maddie Bryson to design a, a patio project for us. 
um, make it, we, we, we wanted to turn our patio, I should say we, I, the royal we, uh, wanted to make our patio a little more warm and inviting, so uh, Maddie's got a keen eye for design, so I asked for her help, and she came up with something that was absolutely beautiful. It also involves moving a lot of dirt with a shovel and a wheelbarrow. How much dirt? Four cubic yards. At least that's how much gravel, you know, has to go back in its place. Uh, and so multiple times uh, while shoveling dirt and moving dirt, I've looked at Rebecca and said, I've made a huge mistake. Right? Why? Because I wanted the project done yesterday. Now, if you ask me how long it took to actually move that dirt and start spreading the gravel out, maybe four or five days. Right? Not very long. But that's how we are. We, we want it done, and we want it done now. We are an impatient people. And God keeps his promises, but he does it in his own good time. We live in a world that needs everything resolved right now. But Abraham never saw the fulfillment of God's promise. He, in his lifetime, he died before he ever saw the offspring who would bless the world. He never saw it. David, he saw his son Solomon take the throne, but that was it. He would not see what would happen to the throne after him. He died trusting that God would keep his promise, but he actually never saw it fulfilled in his lifetime. In fact, if you trace the whole story of the Old Testament, you'll see that that it kind of ends with a question mark. Will God keep his promises? And Matthew's answer is yes. His name is Jesus. God keeps his promises. Now, if you're frustrated with how slowly God works, I hope that you'll be encouraged by this next part. Not only does God keep his promises, but he keeps them through human failure. Do you have branches in your family tree that maybe you wish weren't there? People who did embarrassing things. People who did horrible things. Maybe that person is you. We like to think that Jesus comes from a long, proud family history. But the truth of the matter is, he doesn't. Jesus' family tree looks a lot like my family tree and your family tree. That is to say, it is full of sinful people. We might even say it is a dysfunctional family. Look at some of the special mentions in Jesus' family tree. Verse 3. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Do you know Tamar's story? Probably skip this one in family devotions. It's in Genesis 38. And quite frankly, I don't even know how to summarize it. Uh, it sounds like it belongs more on a trashy reality show or a TV talk show than it does in the Bible. Uh, you see, Tamar is not Judah's wife. Tamar is Judah's daughter-in-law. And Tamar dresses up like a prostitute in order to attract Judah. And you might think that she's the one in the wrong, and for that she certainly is, but actually the person who's in the wrong is Judah. Judah's job, see, the, the, the sons of Judah that were married to Tamar all died. 
And Judah did not want to provide for his daughter-in-law. And so she forces his hand. And so here we have a dysfunctional family relationship in Jesus' family tree. Then we have in verse 5, Rahab. Now, Rahab, Rahab's story is not as bad as Tamar's. You'll find her story in the book of Joshua. Maybe you've heard of, the, uh, of Israel conquering the city of Jericho. Well, Rahab uh, was a prostitute who lived in the city of Jericho. Uh, and when the Israelite spies came into the city, it was Rahab who hid them from the king who wanted to kill them. For her faithfulness, she is spared when the city is destroyed and she earns a name in Jesus' family tree. Then we have Ruth in verse 5. Now, we learned Ruth's story last year at Christmas time. Ruth was actually a pretty good lady, uh, but she was from the clan of the Moabites, the people of the Moabites, who were under a curse. They were not to be allowed in the temple. That's Ruth. Then, in verse 6, we read this. And Jesse, the father of David the king. There we go. David the king. You can feel good about that. Then we read that David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. David had a son with another man's wife. And Matthew doesn't even mention her name. Why? I don't think it's because he's ashamed of her. I think it's to draw attention to David's sin. That David not only committed adultery with Bathsheba, with Uriah's wife, but then he had him put to death in battle. He murdered him with somebody else's hand. That's Jesus' family tree. And then you read, if you keep going, you read names like Rehoboam, Joram, Ammon, Manasseh, Jeconiah. And if you're not familiar with the story of the Bible, all of these were wicked kings. Some of them who had good, godly fathers, but these kings did not walk with God. And it is these kings that lead to verse 11, the time of the deportation to Babylon. If David's reign is the high point of the Old Testament, the exile to Babylon is the low point. The nation of Babylon comes in, they crush Jerusalem, they destroy God's temple, they carry God's people off into exile. Matthew, by the way, is writing to, to Jewish people primarily. And so you can imagine as he recounts this story that they, they wince a little bit. This was a, a sore spot. For them, not their proudest moment. See, the reason that God had allowed them, had sent them into exile, is because they refused to follow Him. They refused to worship Him. They refused to do right. And so you read at the end of the Old Testament in the prophets and in the book of Lamentations questions like, Has God forgotten us? What about His good promises? What happens now? And so Jesus' Jesus's family tree not only reveals that God keeps his promises, it also reveals just how corrupt human nature can be. And 
It reveals just how far God's mercy and grace will go. You see, even through the exile, God is keeping his promises. God doesn't just keep his promises in spite of human failure. God actually keeps his promises through human failure. Let me put that another way. God uses human failure and sin to accomplish his redemptive purpose. This is what Joseph told his brothers back in Genesis 50 after they had thrown him in a pit, planned to murder him, decided against murdering him and threw him in in, in prison instead or sent him to slavery in Egypt. After several years, when he sees them again, he says, what you intended for evil, God meant for good. That's the story of Jesus's family tree, that God keeps his promises through human failure. What we intend for evil, God uses for good. And then finally, God keeps his promises in unexpected ways. One of those unexpected ways is that five different women are mentioned in Jesus's genealogy. And it's not altogether uncommon in Jewish genealogies for women to be mentioned. But that's not typical, right? In a typical genealogy, right, the line is traced through the father. The mother is not often mentioned, but here Matthew mentions five of them. And many of them are a shock because of their background, their history. Three of them are Gentiles. They're outsiders. They're not Israelites. They don't belong. Right? Their presence in Jesus' family tree means that Jesus isn't a pure blood, to use Harry Potter's phrase. That Jesus has a muddled background. And Matthew goes out of his way to mention these women. Why? Because Jesus came for outsiders, too. He didn't just come for the good Jews. He came for the Gentiles as well. And then you have a list of names of forgettable people. Who is Azor? Who is Zadok? Who is Mathen? We don't know these people. We know nothing about them other than their names. You know, most of us will be forgotten by history. Uh, My son Weston is fascinated by uh, family trees and genealogy and history. And so for his birthday, he got a subscription to Ancestry.com and got on there. And he traced our generations going back several generations. And you know what we discovered? We have no idea who those people are. Most of them are just names on a page. And if we're honest, that will be true for most of us. And yet, Jesus comes to redeem and rescue forgettable people. He comes for the good, the bad, and the ugly. The good ones, who really aren't all that good. The bad ones, who are not beyond the reach of his grace. And the ugly, who would be left out in the cold, if not for his mercy. Jesus is born into broken humanity to rescue broken humanity. That's the story that Jesus' family tree tells. 
Now, I want you to notice something. Look in verse 16. See there that Jacob is the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. Now, where he says Jesus was born, that, that's a change in the word that he's been using. For 15 verses, Matthew has said again and again, was the father of. It's actually an active word. You're, if you're using an older translation, it might read begot, right? Uh, Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac begot Jacob. You could translate it fathered, right? It's an active word. But in Jesus' case, it's the same word, but he changes it to the passive. Jesus was born. Why does, he, why does he do that? Well, because Joseph didn't father Jesus. Jesus is someone different. In Jesus, God breaks the repetitive cycle that has come before him. In Jesus, God is invading human history and he is doing something new. He is redeeming human history. And then look at his name. We see it in verse 1, we see it in 16, and we see it in 17. Jesus Christ. Jesus who is called Christ. From the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. The Christ. Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ is actually a title. It's a royal title. It's the old Hebrew word Messiah, anointed one. What Matthew is saying is the one that you've been waiting for is finally here. The one that your soul has been longing for is finally here. The one who has come to rescue us and redeem us is finally here. And his name is Jesus, the Christ. Amen. As we turn our attention to pray...